Since January, we've been uh, working through, as you know, uh, or most of you will know, we've been working through Mark's Gospel. We've got, after today, we've got three more Sundays to go. We're going to finish on Easter Sunday. Um, but the pace of what we've been doing is slowing right down. Um, you, you may well know that this whole gospel covers three years of Jesus' public ministry, but nearly a third of the book at the end covers essentially the last week of Jesus' life, and the, and the last few chapters actually cover the last 24 hours, if you like, of Jesus' life. Um, so our talks now are looking at things almost in slow motion. We've covered lots and lots of different uh, scenes from Jesus' ministry. But last week, Jai was talking about the Last Supper, the first time when Jesus takes communion with his disciples in the upper room. And next week, Ben's going to be looking at the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And uh, this week, I have the privilege of looking at this very poignant scene in what has become known as the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem in the evening after they've eaten together and they go outside the city of Jerusalem. They head east towards the Mount of Olives to this place Mark says is called Gethsemane. Let me try and just give you some background first of all. Um, a couple of years ago, some of you know, I went to Jerusalem and uh, took this photograph and uh, this photograph is taken from the Mount of Olives, looking across the valley of Kidron towards Jerusalem. And that uh, building there in the middle is the Dome of the Rock. That's the Temple Mount where the old Jewish temple was until it was destroyed. You can see the east wall of Jerusalem. So when Jesus' disciples come out of Jerusalem, they come out of that wall. And it's, it's not the greatest angle. I wish I was like looking down the valley, but you can see there the terraces, can't you? You can actually see olive trees in there. They would have gone down quite steeply into the valley of Kidron and across it, and then up the opposite slopes. The Mount of Olives sounds like a mountain. It's really a hill, but you can see it. It's kind of looking down on the city of Jerusalem. And as they go up onto the Mount of Olives, they come to this place called Gethsemane, this seems to have been an, what we might call an olive orchard. It's likely that it was a walled area. And we know that Jesus often met in this place with his disciples. John tells us that the reason that Judas knew where Jesus was at this moment was that Jesus had met there with his disciples many times before. In fact, in Luke's gospel, we're told that they slept here overnight when, when they were in Jerusalem for that last week of Jesus' ministry. The disciples escaped from the city and came to this part and they slept there overnight before going back into the city. So Judas knew exactly where they were because he'd been there sleeping with them this very week. The next picture, just, this is just, uh, no one really knows where the Garden of Gethsemane is now because when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, they cut all the olive trees down on the Mount of Olives. But tradition has it that this is kind of where they think it was. The church in the background is a church to commemorate Gethsemane. And these are olive trees that are centuries old. 
And so may, maybe this is something like the Garden of Gethsemane would have looked when the disciples entered this little orchard. Now, when, when I went to Israel, we went to Nazareth, and there's a museum there where they made a reconstruction of a first century olive press. And uh, I was just looking on YouTube this week or, or researching on Google and stumbled across this little video. It's only two minutes. But the guy who presents this video was the guy who was our tour guide, so it made me feel quite nostalgic to go back to Israel. So let's watch this little two-minute video, and it will give us some background about the whole idea of olive pressing. So here we go. You'll never use olive oil in the same way again, no. Um, so the word Gethsemane actually means olive press. It's very possible as Jesus went up the Mount of Olives with his disciples that this was a little business that someone Jesus knew ran. And uh, so they find themselves here in this place. Before we uh, get into the detail, let me just underline uh, what I've called the surprising authenticity of this scene. Time and time again, as we've gone through Mark's gospel, Mark tells us things that no one would have or could have really made up. And I don't think this scene is any different. And, uh, and here's why. I think some people claim that history is written by the winners often. So the truth is suppressed and the gospels that we have in the Bible are really written by people as a sort of propaganda uh, to propagate myths about Jesus. But one writer says this, it is inconceivable it is inconceivable that the early church would create a scene in which Jesus appears panicked and begs God to cancel his impending martyrdom and in which the disciples appear so feckless. The, the point is that no one in history has ever faced death like Jesus does in this passage. There have been many people in history who have died the heroic death of a martyr. There's countless examples of martyrs who have faced death calmly um, or, or even bravely uh, going down fighting. It seems like some followers of Jesus died better than Jesus himself did. In the second century, there's a, there's a statue of him here. I haven't got a picture of him because they hadn't got cameras then. But there was a bishop known as Polycarp. He was burned at the stake for refusing to pay homage to the emperor. And just before he died, he, he was asked if he would pay homage to the emperor to save his life. And this is what Polycarp said, 86 years I have served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my King and Saviour? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And then he's burnt at the stake. Amazing. Here's another one. In the, in the 1500s, here in England, Hugh Latimer was the Bishop of Worcester. He later became chaplain to King Edward VI. He was burnt at the stake in 1555 in Oxford. As he was being burned next to his friend, Nicholas Ridley, 
he's reported to have said to him, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. The bravery and courage of these men is incredible. They seem to have faced their death, a horrific death, beautifully. Why is it in this passage that Jesus looks like he's falling apart? The point is that it, you, you, if, if anyone was making this up, it would make no sense. Who would portray Jesus falling on his face in tears, anguish, begging God to release him from the task of going to the cross? The very idea of a king or a leader suffering anguish in this way would offend the courage of a Roman, the stoicism of a Greek, and all the heroic martyrs down the centuries who have died bravely. And that's before we even think about the disciples falling asleep, not once, but three times. These guys were the leaders in the early church. If you were making this up, you would portray them as strong, heroic. Here, they, they look like stumbling fools, in a sense. No, I, I, I think we have to come to the conclusion that the reason Mark writes this down, as he does, is because it really happened. So, I only want to ask two questions today. Thinking about olives that are crushed, pressed, I think what Mark gives us here in simple terms is a contrast between the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself. And the two questions are, how then do the disciples respond to being crushed? And then secondly, we look at how does the Lord Jesus here respond to being crushed in that press? First of all then, how do the disciples respond to being crushed? I think for us to understand what's going on here, we have to step back a little bit. This, this is talk number 13 in the series. So we've, we've been through Mark's gospel. And you, you know now that the disciples of Jesus have seen something of his power, his integrity, his wisdom, that they've confessed him as God's promised king. And now, in this last week particularly, even though Jesus has predicted this, the disciples are seeing Jesus walk into what seems like a suicidal mission. They're profoundly disorientated and they still at this point don't understand what Jesus is trying to do. It's interesting, in, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke, after Jesus dies, there's a couple of friends who are walking on the road to Emmaus, near Jerusalem, and they're talking. And one of them says, we had hoped, what a poignant phrase that is, we had hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Jerusalem, and now he's dead. These disciples have seen Jesus deliberately put himself in danger. 
by coming to Jerusalem in the first place, where the leaders there hate Jesus and are plotting to kill him. Jesus then rides into Jerusalem on a donkey rather than a horse, and it's almost like Jesus is goading the religious leaders and saying to them, either crown me or kill me. And the disciples are watching this happen. During the week, he goes to the temple and attacks the very religious establishment. And you see Jesus kicking tables over and whipping the money changers out of the temple. And then Jesus seems to become so melancholy, doesn't he? It's almost like he becomes paranoid. As they're eating together, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And their jaws are on the floor and they're looking at each other and thinking, who is it? Which one of us is it going to be? And in the passage that Andrew read to us, Jesus quotes from the prophet in the Old Testament, Zechariah, and tells them, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be all over the place. The disciples are like, what on earth is going on? And now in the garden, where they've already slept this week, they see Jesus stumble off and fall on his face to the ground, crushed. He tells them, Mark says, that he is so overwhelmed with sadness that he could die. He throws himself on the ground, crying out from the depths of his being, No! The disciples see Jesus agonizing. I'm reminded, I, I put the verse on the screen, I'm reminded of a verse in Hebrews um, that says this. It's very interesting that we, we have the record here of Gethsemane in the Gospels. I, I think this is a reference possibly to Gethsemane here. The writer of the Hebrews, we don't know who it was, says this, during the days of his life on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Loud cries and tears. I don't think this was a quiet, whispered, calm, serene prayer here. It seems like this moment in Gethsemane has been seared into the memories of these early believers. Jesus is in utter anguish here. And to the disciples, this must be shocking. Can you imagine that feeling when someone you know who is strong and reliable and normally totally in control suddenly seems to have lost it and is weak. I, I remember as a young boy, I don't know, maybe I was like seven or eight, coming downstairs and finding my mum sitting at the dining room table with her head in her hand sobbing. There were things going on that I didn't understand then but I, I, I still remember now the disorientation and shock of seeing the vulnerability of someone that I thought was invincible. 
falling apart, it seemed to me as a seven or eight-year-old boy. What must these disciples have been making of this scene in the garden? Our question, though, is essentially, how do they respond to being crushed? Let's just notice here what Mark tells us. On the way across the Kidron Valley, Jesus tells them that the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep will be scattered. He also tells them that after he's risen, he's going ahead of them to Galilee. They don't seem to pick up on that. And Peter says in verse 29, I don't know what his friends thought of this. Peter stands up and he says, even if all the others fall away, I won't. And Jesus says very gently to him, I tell you the truth, Peter, today, even yes, tonight, before the crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And look at what it says there at the end of verse 31. And all the others said the same. No chance, Lord. We are ready to die with you. When they reached the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus seems to leave some of the disciples at the gate and he takes Peter, James and John a little farther on and basically says, come with me. This is unbearable. Pray with me. Later, Jesus says, pray for yourselves. This is a moment of extreme danger. Darkness is all around them. The, the vulture-like satanic powers of darkness are circling and swooping. Jesus says to them, I'm in agony here and you're in danger too. Pray, keep watch, be alert, stay awake. And it's as if they say, sure we will. Sure we will, Jesus, we'll pray with you. And as Jesus falls on his face in agony, they promptly fall asleep. Later on in verse 40, Mark says that their eyes were heavy. In Luke's gospel, Luke says that they were exhausted through sorrow. It's as if everything we've been describing catches up on them. It's late. They've had a big meal. It's dark. They've slept here before. They're battered and bruised and confused. And in this moment of great pressure, all they can do is fall asleep. I think Mark is showing us that very often in our lives, good intentions can so often evaporate, can't they? Aren't they just like we are? Or, or are we just like they were? They're good intentions. All of them said the same. We're ready to die with you, Jesus. 
within an hour, they're snoozing. What they were on the outside didn't quite match what they thought they were on the inside. They promised much and delivered little. And I think the truth is here that as they're crushed, what fails is their integrity. And of course, it isn't that they deliberately set out to pretend to be brave. The truth is that they don't really know their own hearts, do they? They think they're stronger than they really are. That ancient theologian Augustine put it well when he said this, God knows in us even what we do, even what we ourselves do not know in ourselves. God knows in us even what we ourselves do not know in ourselves. Is it not the case often that we have good intentions, but when the pressure comes on, it is our integrity that splits and we end up being what we thought we weren't? We, we would never say that we tell lies, would we? But if it looks like we're going to be disapproved of, how often we pretend to be something that we're not in order to gain the approval that we fear losing. There are so many times, aren't there, in life when we want to be in control. And if things go wrong, we're tempted to cut corners and take risks to get back the ease that we crave or the status we desired. In verse 39, just look with me. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. Verse 40, when Jesus came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say to him. We've been told that before. Do you remember the transfiguration when Peter was babbling? <laughs> he didn't know what to say. He was so frightened here. They, they have nothing to say because they're ashamed. When the pressure comes on, Their integrity disintegrates. Let's, um, let's move on then and turn and see something of how Jesus responds to being crushed. We, we've noted something of the agony of Jesus being quite striking and unusual. Um, how is it that Jesus' followers seem to die better than he dies? How is it that so many people have died nobly and calmly and Jesus here seems so desperate? I think it should seem obvious to us that what Jesus is facing here is unlike anything that any other human has ever or will ever face. So let's try in the time we've got left just to build this up and try and work out what's going on. In verse 36, Jesus prays, and Mark tells us his words. He prays out loud. Abba, Father, 
Jesus said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will, but what you will. I want to highlight um, a few things that are in that sentence. First of all, let me just draw attention here between two things that are really held in tension in this verse, two opposites here. The, the idea of unimaginable intimacy contrasted with ultimate separation. So let, let's deal with those just one at a time. First of all, unimaginable intimacy. It's very striking that Jesus prays here, Abba, Father. The word Abba is not referring to a Swedish band. Um, this is an Aramaic word. This is the language Jesus would have spoken. Aramaic, it's a form of Hebrew. But Jesus clearly isn't using an Aramaic word and then saying Father in Greek. The, Mark records for us the Aramaic that Jesus would have said and then translates it into the Greek so that his Greek readers will know what, what it means. But it, it's incredibly striking that the word Abba, you know how words in one language make their way unchanged into another language? It's, it's, it's quite a striking thing. That I found that there's very few examples in the Old Testament of individuals calling God their father. There are some, but the overwhelming majority of times where God is referred to as father, it's really talking about Israel corporately. God is the father of the nation of Israel. But when you come to New Testament, in the Gospels alone, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, there are over 170 occasions where God is referred to as father. It's like an explosion. And this word, Abba, is a word of warmth and intimacy and affection. And one writer says this, We know the word Abba because it had burned itself on the disciples' minds. They were so stunned because no one had ever spoken to God so intimately. And it was therefore so stunning to them to hear Jesus speak of his father as Abba, that they retained the Aramaic, and even when they were writing Gospels in Greek, they still used the same word. Paul does the same. Some of you will know this in Romans and Galatians. No matter what language Scripture is translated into, the original Abba is still used. Now we've seen, we've seen, haven't we, in Mark's Gospel, that God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We've seen that this is the closest relationship of love and pleasure and joy and delight and intimacy between this Father and this Son, the Lord Jesus. There's never been a moment when any shadow has passed between them. Their knowledge of each other and delight in each other has never experienced a cloud. I, I feel like I know my wife pretty well. After thir almost 30 years of marriage, I certainly know her better than some random person that I might meet at a bus stop. You know, after 30 years, I feel like I know her better than other people. But ca can we even begin to commute, c compute 
how, how much on a different plane the relationship between the Father and the Son is in terms of that knowledge and delight and intimacy. Whenever Jesus has prayed, he has used the word Abba, and he has heard his Father's pleasure and delight in reply. This is the fuel that drives his whole life. And here in the garden, Jesus comes to the Father that he has always loved and known and that has always loved and known him. And he pleads for that cup to be taken away and he hears silence. He prays to Abba Father and hears nothing. Unimaginable intimacy. What of the cup then? I don't think we can begin to imagine either what is in that cup. This is a cup that on one level is filled with human sin. All the violence, all the greed, all the selfishness, all the corruption, every war and every fight, every sexual sin, every exploitation, every injustice, every murder, every jealousy, every hateful thought, all of it, all of it is distilled and it's there in this cup. But it's more than that. In the Old Testament, this imagery of the cup is overwhelmingly used to describe the righteous fury of God against that sin. It is described in the Old Testament as a goblet that makes men stagger makes Jesus stagger here. Now, I, I know, and you know, some people have a massive issue with a God who is angry, or that the wrath of God is something that people have a massive issue with. What, what we want, really, is a God of love. So, they say... But I think what people who say that fail to understand is that if God is a God of love, he must by definition be a God who gets angry because anyone who loves will get angry when the things they love become ruined. This cup is the foaming cup of God's deep and settled anger against everything that breaks his heart. This is a cup that signifies separation. Why? I, I, I think there's something about human sin that is essentially really saying to God, go away. 
leave me alone. I do not want you in my life. I can do it on my own. God, go away. And do you know the very worst outcome of that is if God gave us what we really wanted. For God to give us what we really want is for him to leave us and separate himself from us. And that, dear friends, is the very definition of hell. So in this moment, get this tension, in this moment, Jesus is talking to the Father who he has been unimaginably intimate with all down the ages of eternity and at the same time looking into the abyss. But there's more here. Just please for a moment look with me at verse 33. We could easily miss this. Mark tells us that Jesus took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began. He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. I, I want to call this the shock. As Jesus here in the garden is praying, something begins here. It, this has not happened before. He begins to be deeply distressed and troubled. The word for distress here actually also has the idea of shock in it. It's a word of horrified surprise. This, in, in the old King James Version, I think in this verse it says, Jesus was sore amazed. That's a better translation in a way than what it says here. He was shocked. The unshockable, unflappable, unsurprisable Jesus literally in this moment has his breath taken away. What strikes us here, or what should strike us here, is that Jesus knows what is coming. We've seen in Mark's Gospel, he's predicted this three times in Mark's Gospel already. We're going to go to Jerusalem. He tells them what's going to happen. But there's a difference, friends, isn't there, between knowing information and experiencing reality? Now, as if for the first time, the Father places this cup on the table in front of Jesus. And this is the moment where it begins. This is the moment where for the first time Jesus can smell it and taste it and feel it as he looks into that cup. It's as if the father takes the cup and swirls it around in his face to show him. Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He says to them, I could die. Friends, this is the anticipation of what's to come, and it nearly kills him. There's a brilliant sermon 
by a very famous Christian preacher called Jonathan Edwards, entitled The Agonies of Christ. And he says many things, but two things have struck me very powerfully this week. First of all, there's no slide for this. First of all, Jesus had to make this choice with his eyes wide open. Edwards comments, Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfold as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, so that he might not do so, God first brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners as knowing what it was. This view Christ had in his agony. What Edwards is saying is that Jesus didn't just say Geronimo, and jump into it with a blindfold on. This is the moment when the Father showed him. And in this moment, seeing it all, Jesus freely chose to drink it to its very dregs. Secondly, Jesus had to make this choice in the face of human failure. Do you find it striking that in this very moment the disciples fall asleep? At this very moment, when Jesus is gazing into this cup and he senses for the first time experientially what it will cost him, He's also being confronted with the fact that he's doing this for them. One writer says that what is amazing about this is that God almost rubs his nose in the unworthiness and stupidity of the people he's going to die for. The foolishness of his friends. Just listen to me for a moment. So you listen to Edwards again here for a moment. When that dreadful cup was before him, Jesus did not say within himself, why should I, who am so great and glorious a person, infinitely more honorable than all the angels of heaven, why should I go to plunge myself into such dreadful, amazing torments for worthless, wretched worms that cannot be profitable to God or me and that deserve to be hated by me and not to be loved? Why should I, who have been living from all eternity in the endurement of the Father's love, cast myself into such a furnace for them. Edwards is saying, that's what Jesus could have said, maybe should have said. This is the moment where Jesus could have said, why should I? 
Do you ever get tempted to think that God has abandoned you? Do you ever get tempted to think that he would abandon you? Friends, in this moment, Jesus looks into the very depths of hell and into the face of our human weakness. And his integrity doesn't split apart. If he didn't walk away in this moment, he never will. Will he? If he didn't walk away now, he's never walking away. So, in the midst of this traumatic shock, let's see, finally, we're almost done. This shock leads to his loving obedience. No one has ever, ever or will experience anything like this. Does this not reveal Jesus to be the ultimate man of steel? When Jesus says here in this prayer, not my will, not what, you, not what I will, but what you will, he is freely accepting this mission. This is the invisible struggle before the inevitable cross. We might say this is where the battle was really won. Jesus is expressing that he will obey the goodwill of his father even though it costs him and that means that he loves sinners too even though it costs him this desperate prayerful agony in the garden in the dark serves to increase his resolve and by the end of this section the very last verse that we read Jesus says, enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Sinners that Mark's gospel tells us that he came to call. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. I, I don't know who suffers the most here. Is it the Father? who loves the Son and who gives him up to this? Or is it the Son who drinks the cup to its very dregs? They both suffer in different ways. The point is that they're in this together, working to save sinners from a terrible fate and giving them a love and a kindness and a grace that they don't deserve. When he was crushed, Jesus prayed for release. He prayed to heaven with all of his heart and he got hell. Jesus was forsaken so that you and I would forever be welcomed. He drank the cup of wrath that should have been ours. He faced the darkness so that we could forever live in his light. In the garden here, as the Father sends and as the Son obeys, you can see the terrifying reality 
of the wrath of God and the magnificent and unbreakable love that he has for sinners. Jesus is the man of steel whose love will never break. Wherever you are looking for love, approval, wherever you are looking for those things, put them down and look to Jesus who will never let you down. And how, how can we be people of integrity? How can we live in such a way that when we're crushed, our integrity doesn't disintegrate? How can you keep going when it feels like even your best friends forsake you instead of being there for you? Many people say that seeing is believing. There's some truth in that. But actually, biblically, seeing is becoming. If you want to be a person of integrity, drink deeply of Jesus. See him, love him, cherish him. Take time in your daily life just to adore him so that when you get up and go out without even realizing it, you will be increasingly like him. Let's bow, shall we, for a moment? As all just musicians come up, we're going to pray. Thirty years after this incident in the garden, Peter. He fell asleep and who then denied Jesus three times wrote these words to Christian believers who were suffering crushed in the press and he wrote this though you have not seen him you love him And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, we pray. Father, we're on holy ground today. We pray that as we've had a glimpse into this scene in the garden here, We pray that you would fill us too with an inexpressible and glorious joy as we see Jesus, the man of steel. Father, we thank you that you have given Jesus so that we could be yours. You lost him to gain us. Father, would you help us in our lives to drink deeply of him and help us to go out into the world. Help us to go out this week, this afternoon, to live as people of integrity, 
because our hearts are stilled by his presence within us. We pray in his mighty name. Amen.